Let's do it. It's time for the August 4th, 2023 edition of Weekly Signals Weekly Review. A personal recollection of the last 168 hours of history broadcasting on International Beer Day from the University of California at Irvine on KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And as always, the butt of every joke, Mahler, the fake news dog. There he is. Bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. May I say, Nathan, that... That yes, Mueller, the fake news dog, has never been more relevant than he is today. Today, mm-hmm. by the way, mm-hmm. we'll be talking about virgin birth, Ooh. Joshua trees, a texting judge, family pets, and so much more. But first, mm-hmm. what percentage Neanderthal do you think you are? Oh gosh, I would have to say a solid seven to eight percent. Well, I should have told you. Beforehand, it's doubtful you're over 2%. Oh. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> but if you feel a lot, then you might be in the upper reaches of Neanderthalism. Yeah. I don't have the forehead and all that stuff. You know, I don't know. That no. Right, but I, but, you I, have but a there are weak forehead. Yeah, I have a yeah. weak forehead and weak chin, which is really, yeah. Yeah, that's not Neanderthal. That's not Neanderthal. Yeah. yeah. So maybe, maybe the two. Maybe Let's the go two. with the two. Okay. Yeah, yeah. From News International, scientists revived a worm that was frozen 46,000 years ago. Its name... Walt Disney, <laughs> an uptight, union-busting McCarthyite worm. That's what it was. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. But I digress. <laughs> Scientists revived a worm that was frozen 46,000 years ago. That's when woolly mammoths, saber-toothed tigers, and Neanderthals still roamed the earth. Uh, the roundworm of a previously unknown species survived 131 feet below the surface in the Siberian permafrost in a dormant state known as cryptobiosis, just like Walt. <laughs> Except he wasn't in the Siberian permafrost, but no. he may be. We don't know for sure. Organisms in a cryptobiotic state can endure the complete absence of water or oxygen and withstand high temperatures as well as freezing or extremely salty conditions. Wow. Yeah, which means they can survive eating at Pizza Hut. (laughs) Organisms previously revived from cryptobiosis had survived for decades rather than millennia. In other words, you know, a couple decades. Yeah, that's nothing. Not 46,000 years. That's nothing, yeah. This is crazy. Yeah. Genetic analysis showed that these worms belonged to a new species, which researchers named Panagrolemus holimanus. That's okay. And not only were the worms revived, they had babies. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So these 46,000-year-old worms wow. Wow. have little uh, baby worms running around. Uh-huh. Wow. That's pretty exciting. That is. Now, you don't hear stuff like this on the regular No, news. you don't. And You'd be hearing about an indictment, yeah, it, which it, we knew was coming. Yeah. And yeah. good, it came. Yeah. But now let's get down to business. Exactly. And if you hadn't heard about them, why haven't you heard about these? Life these forms. worms. These worms, yeah. yeah. Ask yourself, stuff. why don't I know this already? From Nature magazine, for the first time, scientists used genetic engineering to trigger virgin birth, or what we like to call parthenogenesis, in female animals that normally need a male to partner to reproduce. 
The research marked the first time scientists isolated specific genes to make parthenogenesis a lasting and inheritable trait in an organism not otherwise capable of this type of reproduction. There's a variety of animals that can do this. Is that right? There's a variety of animals that can do this. That, that, that are capable of, of yeah. yeah. That's how they've developed. Okay. But now we have found how to turn these uh, fruit flies. Okay. Into, into, uh, into religious to, icons. Well, if that's the way you like to look at virgin birth. <laughs> well, it's Being certainly a, one of the characteristics <laughs> of a religious icon. So, I certain, guess. Or certain. maybe Jesus was a fruit fly. Or Mary. <laughs> oh, sorry, Jesus. Sorry, yeah. sorry. sorry to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so help me with this. Okay. Does that mean that, <laughs> that you could induce this into a human? No, no, I mean, not maybe at some point in time likely, in the yeah. very distant future, but this, it would take probably a different, you know, I'm making guesses here, yeah. but changing a fruit fly yeah. might be a little bit different than changing yeah. it yeah, I just make I, up the DNA of a human. Did you know that seahorses are, multi, I don't know what they call it, multisexual? They can change from male to female and mm. give birth. Well, seahorses. good to know. Yeah. So what you're saying is Ron DeSantis wouldn't appreciate he would seahorses. Not. He would not. He would say, yeah, seahorses and learning about seahorses is banned in Florida. If you'd like to hear more about frozen worms and virgin birth, may I recommend a donation to KUCI? Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air, commercial-free. Freeform, Free Speech Radio, KUCI, 88.9 FM. From the Washington Post. When he toured a natural gas drilling site in Ohio in June, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a Republican from California's 20th Congressional District, which would be, that's a strange little district, yeah. It's down in Bakersfield, but it moves all the way up to Fresno. Yes. Now, granted, there aren't a lot of people between Bakersfield and Fresno. That's all ag for the most part. And oil fields. Yeah. <laughs> no, oil I'm field. serious. Bakersfield is, yeah. is I, I believe, the largest you know, area of production for oil in, in, in the California. state, land on land anyway, yeah. yeah. Uh, McCarthy vowed to boost U.S. production of oil and natural gas, major contributors to climate change. Yeah. Asked about his plans to prevent further fires and other disasters fueled by climate change, McCarthy suggested a strategy popular among Republicans, plant a trillion trees. Yeah, that, that's what they... You that, know, I got to tell you, when the first time I heard that, let's all plant a trillion and billion or whatever it was, the first time I heard it, that, that's a good idea. And then the, when you drill down on that yeah. idea, yeah, not, so, not so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about if we just stop pouring carbon into the air through fossil fuels... And then we'll let the trees grow the way they're supposed to. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the plan to plant a fat trillion trees has some prominent backers in the GOP. Trump announced in 2020 yeah. that the U.S. would join a global initiative to plant a trillion trees, despite his climate science denialism. Bruce Westerman, the Republican chairman of the House Natural Resources Committee, has introduced legislation to plant a trillion trees as a comprehensive and practical solution to the climate issues we're facing today. Well, yeah, it's practical to plant a trillion well, trees. Yeah. Who, 
I just go out and do it every day. Yeah. But yeah. new research finds that planting a trillion trees would have minimal effect on halting global warming, partly because of the long lag time for trees to reach maturity and absorb large amounts of carbon. Remember, we're talking about planting seedlings. What would you say a, a reasonable estimate would be for a tree to reach that level of maturity where it would actually have an impact on? Depends on the tree. Yeah, okay. Right. We're not planting trees, so this is a wrongly named project here. It should be plant a trillion seedlings. Yes. That's what we're planting. Yeah, we're planting. Eventually, right. those seedlings, a percentage of them might grow into full maturity. We don't know. Right. They plant a trillion seedlings analysis found that planting a trillion seedlings would only prevent 0.27 degrees Fahrenheit of warming by 2100. And we don't have that much time. Exactly. It also found that planting a trillion seedlings would only sequester 6% of the carbon dioxide that the world needs to avoid emitting by 2050 to meet the goal of the Paris Climate Accord, right. limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. It looks like we're already there. I think we are. I, yeah, I, you're right. So planting a trillion trees or seedlings or saplings is not a serious solution to the climate crisis it's too little, too late. And you know what? There's too many effing trees in Irvine. Yeah. and We've got other concerns beside trees. We have drought. Yeah. You go into a parking lot in Irvine, and generally you can see 50 to 100 trees in a parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> From the Atlantic. As the West continues to dry up, water managers are pressed to accurately predict how much of the snowpack will enter the water supply each spring so the rest of us can survive here in this semi-arid landscape. One of the largest unknowns in water loss from snowpack is sublimation. What's sublimation? sublimation. Well, I'm glad you asked that, Mike. That's when snow skips the liquid phase entirely, turning straight from a solid into a vapor. Okay. Snow sublimation may be responsible for anywhere from 10 to 90% of snow loss. Now, that's a ridiculously large margin of error, mm -hmm. 10 to 90%. But that's the source of the uncertainty for water managers attempting to predict how much water will enter the system once the snow melt begins. 10 to 90%, they have a variable there. Because of the complex intersecting processes that drive sublimation, researchers have set up more than 100 instruments in an alpine meadow just south of Gothic, Colorado, known as Kettle Ponds. They hope the data will one day give water managers a better understanding of how much sublimation eats into the region's water budget, helping make more accurate predictions for what is likely to be an even hotter and drier future. From Los Angeles Times, as firefighters battle a massive wildfire that continues to grow in the eastern Mojave Desert, national park officials and ecologists are preparing for habitat losses that are likely to alter the landscape forever. A lot of pinyon pines and junipers have been incinerated, and a lot of Joshua trees. Mm. California's largest wildfire of the year has grown to over 80,000 acres in the desert around the Nevada border, burning primarily in the National Preserve. Joshua trees, which grow nowhere else in the world besides the Mojave Desert, are particularly vulnerable to fire with little natural defense. 
forests, it will be nearly impossible for full Joshua tree forests to return from the scorched earth as they once were, and they are likely to be replaced by smaller shrubs and grasses. In 2020, the Dome Fire burned more than 40,000 acres. This one's burning 80,000 acres yeah. already. Yeah. And that, the Dome Fire was in southwestern uh, California desert. This is in the eastern Mojave destroying a, an estimated one million Joshua trees, the oh drome, Dome Fire. Though large wildfires historically have not burned in California's deserts, experts say the wet weather and cool spring helped invasive grasses and underbrush flourish in the Mojave and Colorado deserts, providing ample fuel for these blazes as the vegetation dried out amid soaring temperatures of the climate crisis. I read a little bit of this story uh, yesterday, and I was thinking to myself, I had never thought about fires in the desert. Right. It just seemed like, well, there's not enough vegetation for something like that to happen, but yeah, we're in a new age. Yep. There was a book that came out, I think, about three years ago called The Age of Fire, and it, and it was prescient. It was basically saying the planet is entering into an age where fire will become a predominant factor in our life. Do you ever draw a cartoon cactus, Mike? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure somewhere along. Yeah, with the arms yeah. held up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like that uptight union busting McCarthy at Walt Disney used in his cartoon <laughs> Two Gun Mickey. Remember that? <laughs> oh, who could yeah. forget Two Gun Mickey? Yeah, yeah. yeah. From Reuters <laughs> News Service. Arizona's saguaro cacti, a symbol of the U.S. West, are losing arms and in some cases falling over during the state's record streak of extreme heat due to the climate crisis. Summer monsoon rains the cactus rely on have failed to arrive, testing the saguaro's ability to survive global warming. Until recently, many thought saguaro cacti were perfectly adapted to high temperatures and drought, but the cacti need to cool down at night or through rain or mist. Yeah. So they need to cool down either a little bit of rain, mist, or when it cools off at night. If that does not happen, they sustain internal damage. Plants now suffering from prolonged excessive heat may take months or years to die. So we don't even know how many have been lost right now. This I saw that picture. I think it was in the L.A. Times that I saw it of the cacti falling. Well, falling. It was on the, basically laying on the ground, yeah. which was a bit more than a bit unnerving to see that. From the Arizona Republic... Phoenix hit a high of 112 Sunday, marking its 31st consecutive day where temperatures spiked above 110 degrees. The temperature dipped down to 106, a cool and breezy 106 <laughs> on Tuesday, but was back again to 110 yesterday. And the city is forecasted for another two weeks above 110 at least. It's unimaginable. Yeah. Can you imagine two months? Basically, they're going to end up with close to two months worth of temperatures over and the lows are 90 at night yeah, yeah. I, I just it's it's that's when it gets to me i mean i don't like it to be over 110 yeah, generally yeah. but if you have a, a kind of a high desert thing going yeah it will drop down to maybe even high 60s yeah so you feel that coolness yeah 90 at night 90 at night i'd like to apologize mike Okay. For being so negative about the climate crisis last week. Okay. I'm kind of a negative guy anyway. <laughs> and you don't help things. No. But, you know, I, I, pour I don't have enough fire. faith yeah. on, th on yeah. things. Yeah. And got inspired by Re Rebecca Solnit in The Guardian. Mm -hmm. 
who says you can feel absolutely devastated about the climate crisis situation and not assume feelings predict outcome. In other words, don't, don't let the bastards get you down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Earlier this year, the Pew Research Center found that a majority, 69% of Americans, support the U.S. becoming carbon neutral by 2050. The same share of Americans, 69%, say the U.S. should prioritize developing renewable energy resources like wind and solar over expanding the production of oil, coal, and natural gas. So the facts tell us that the general public is not the problem. The fossil fuel industry and other vested interests are. We have the solutions. We know what to do. And the obstacles are political. When we fight, we sometimes win, and we are deciding the future now. Yes. Remember, fighting defeatism is also climate work. That's what Ms. Solent said. She's right. Yep. Can I just say that? No. Because this is Debbie Downer time. Yeah. Who in the F are those 31%, and where are the, what in the F are they thinking? Well, that's not a downer. Because yeah. we we, it's our job. Yeah to move them to our side. But more importantly, we have 69%. We have more okay. than a supermajority. So the glass is 69% full. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, the glass is pretty much in a, in a democracy all the way full at 69%. That's true. You can just about defeat any yeah. smaller group of idiots. idiots. The problem is, is we have to persuade industry. Yeah. Well, yeah. Again, I know it's not feasible. I know it's something that is absolutely bat crap crazy. But at some point, the climate emergency should require, I don't know, nationalizing fossil fuel businesses, taking them over. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, they're not going to stop. And they're going to continue to wield tremendous political power in in obfuscating and in blocking measures that we need to move forward on. At what point does this become a national security issue for the country and for the world? Right now. Right now. right now, it's yeah. a national security I- yeah. issue, yeah. and we do to elect people who yeah. realize that and will do something about it, yeah. rather than yeah. people who are getting upset about gender. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us on the web at KUCI.org, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9, on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at KUCIFM. From The Verge. Meta began blocking all news content on Facebook and Instagram in Canada, a change it expects all users in the country to see within the next few weeks. News blocking is in response to Canada's Online News Act, which would require tech companies like Meta and Google to negotiate with and pay publishers for their news content. So it kind of makes sense. Okay. And you yeah. want to pay the writers, yeah. at least. yeah. The blocks just don't apply to news publishers with accounts on the two platforms, but also to links shared by users. Okay. It's not just if Facebook yeah. decides to put a news item up. It's if you... If you sent me a, a news item. Yeah. Well, if you lived in Canada, yeah. I sent you a news item. In Canada, yeah. you wouldn't be able to read that, that yeah. item. Yeah. Meta calls this a business decision, saying it chooses to block news in order to comply with the Online News Act. Okay. In other words, it's can't afford 
or d- wants to make a political statement that the Online News Act is unfair. The company says the Canadian government based its new legislation on the incorrect premise that Meta benefits unfairly from news content shared on the, our platforms, mm-hmm. insisting that news organizations actually benefit from the sharing of their information on its platforms. And people don't come to Facebook or Instagram for news. Mm-hmm. Now, all of these are debatable. But I got to say that when I see enough good news from a certain source on Facebook and I'm being blocked from reading the whole thing because I I don't have a subscription, Mm -hmm. I often subscribe because of my exposure to that publication on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So I hate to agree with Meta and Facebook, but I think they have some good points there. I do too. Google is planning similar action for local news, which it will block starting when the Canadian law takes effect no later than 180 days after the bill's June 22nd passage. So this is all happening in Canada, but they're talking about it here. Yeah. Passing a law like that. In California, I think we've already set it in motion. The one thing I'd bring up in all of that is how do we ensure that I guess through subscription, that's how we ensure that we are maintaining the viability of these news organizations to continue to be able to do what they do. I want to make sure that that is all going. It's not going to meta somehow or some other version of that. Well, I'd like to see it go to the writers. That's exactly. (laughs) That's that's my. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. To the publication. I mean, it's good in theory. I just want to make sure. Yeah. Just what you said, that the money is going to to keeping reporters and news organizations viable. From Ars Technica, the heaviest commercial communication satellite ever built lifted off on top of a SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket from NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The satellite named Jupiter-3 will operate in geostationary orbit more than 22,000 miles over the equator, hopefully providing Internet across the Americas from Canada to Argentina. Jupiter-3 is at least a couple of tons heavier than any satellite of its kind that has launched before. The spacecraft is also the most massive payload ever lofted by Falcon Heavy, still the world's most powerful commercial launch vehicle in operational service. Jupiter-3, from tip to tip, is about 10 stories high and weighs around 9 metric tons. 500 gigabytes per second of total capacity that they have. Wow. Yeah. But it will also be a a huge obstacle to astronomers and to the unpolluted night sky. I'm glad for that one. It's the other thousands of satellites that are roaming around the the atmosphere that are possibly colliding into one. You you don't like those, but you like this one? Well, it's, it's one. Basically, it's one big satellite. I, so I could you live want with just a, a bunch of. I could live with the Death Star tons. as opposed to lots, thousands of things that are may end up colliding with each other and causing all kinds of trouble. But what happens when nine ten drop? Well, that's it's not, not going to burn up as easily. No, you're right. You're yeah. right about that. I just I'll I'll uh, I'll get in my submarine, and I'll go out to sea. Speaking of that, from Space.com, a British-built weather-monitoring spacecraft was deliberately guided into the Atlantic Ocean and hit Mike Casper in his submarine. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What are the chances of that? No, it didn't hit you, Mike, but yeah. it is the I'm... first time a defunct satellite has been maneuvered to perform an assisted crash on Earth. 
Aeolus, it was the satellite's name, and it provided data to weather centers across Europe since 2018 and was successfully guided to its final resting place by mission controllers at the European Space Agency. So here we have something, another little telling sign. That satellite lasted five years. Yeah. And I think it's probably a lot to do with this technology, too, not just that the satellite pooped out, but they have better technology now that they're getting their data from. Yeah. The satellite was not designed for a controlled re-entry at the end of its mission, but the European Space Agency decided to use what little fuel was on board to steer the probe. It was the first time such a re-entry maneuver had been tried. Under normal circumstances, Aeolus would naturally fall back to Earth, burning up in the planet's atmosphere. By crashing it into the ocean, the European Space Agency hoped to reduce the already low risk of debris striking people or property. It also sought to gather data for future satellite re-entries and demonstrate best practice. This is, I think, the most noble of the reasons. Demonstrate best practice in the hope that other space-faring nations and organizations would follow suit. (laughs) From The Guardian, Wisconsin is just one of the growing number of states where predominantly Republican lawmakers are making quiet moves to roll back the alcohol service age Uh so that kids who can't legally buy alcohol or in wisconsin's case can't drive a car would be allowed to serve hard drinks to customers at bars and restaurants the lawmakers behind the bills argue letting kids serve alcohol would alleviate the labor shortage okay because we all know that you know there's no other way to get (laughs) drinks to to a a drunken sailor that's left some opponents Mm -hmm. of the bill at a loss for words I'm at a loss for words. It's bizarre. I can't believe that we're even having this conversation, says Ryan Clancy, a Democratic state legislator who represents parts of Milwaukee, where he also owns an entertainment center that serves alcohol. So this guy is against it. Yeah. And he owns a bar. Yeah. He's seen how drunk customers can harass workers, and the idea that we would expose Wisconsin's children to harassment through this is just unconscionable. It's not only an erosion of labor, but our willingness to protect our kids. Yeah. Well, except if your kid's getting drunk every night. Yeah. One Wisconsin legislator trying to lower the alcohol service age to 14 is Chance Green, a Republican who owns a tavern himself and denies that this bill is rolling back child labor laws. But it (laughs) is. Yeah, yeah, but remember, this is a Republican. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. In Wisconsin's proposal, the drinks are still being made by a licensed bartender. And there is still the responsibility of the bartender and the employer to supervise their employees. Yeah. Right. He said, yeah, this chance guy, the bill would just allow servers who are already working in a restaurant capacity to bring alcoholic beverages to the table they are serving. Yeah. 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 I got to wonder, <sighs> do we really need to sort out a minor status for serving a last round to a DUI DOA in a mother's against drunk driving lawsuit? <laughs> That's right. This is this is that kind of mentality that Republicans are famous for. Right. Like when they revoke the law prohibiting people from bringing guns into a bar. Okay. Well, they don't like to be regulated at all. I well, I get that. Ex- except if it's your gender. <laughs> but I mean, the idea that you would encourage, in a manner of speaking, encouraging people with loaded weapons 
into a situation where alcohol is being served. Where, where kids will be present. Well, kids now will be present. <laughs> Just says a lot about the Republican mentality. Yeah. yeah, that's that's something. From the Oklahoman. 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 Yeah. It doesn't sound right, but it's right. I know. Oklahoman. I wonder if they called people that live there Oklahomans. <laughs> A judge in Oklahoma is under investigation after video shows her repeatedly using her cell phone to text and scroll through Facebook during a murder trial for the killing of a two-year-old boy. Now, say that first part again. Well, this judge oh, the, okay. was using her cell phone gotcha. to text. Okay, the judge. I missed that part. During okay. a murder trial. Oh, Ouch. The video shows Lincoln County District Judge Tracy Soderstrom using her phone for minutes at a time, including during jury selection, the case's opening statements, and during crucial testimony. It is both shocking and disappointing, District Attorney Adam Panter said. Jurors are banned from using cell phone in the courtroom during trial because we expect them to give their full time and attention to the evidence being presented. I would expect and hope the court would hold itself to the same standard required of the jurors, regardless of the type of case. And this is a murder trial. Murder trial. The footage shows the judge texting while Judith Danker, the boy's mother, is sitting on the witness stand. (sighs) <sighs> yeah. Messages sent from both Soderstrom and whoever she's texting can be seen on the judge's phone, including an animated GIF. Oh, my God. <laughs> the murder trial was Soderstrom's first case as a judge, and she began the trial by telling the jury to turn off their phones and electronic devices so they could concentrate on the evidence without interruption. Wow. Well, maybe she saw that article about that city-sized meteor that's heading towards Earth. You were talking about the satellite thing. I just want to get this in because this was such a cool little documentary film, and I want to plug it, please. Uh, It's about Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. The film is called It's Quieter in the Twilight, and it's about the team from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory who continued to support Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And we just lost contact with Voyager 2 a couple of days ago, and they're trying to get back in contact with it. These are two vehicles, two spaceships that have gone further than anyone could have imagined. They've left our solar system and they're still providing us with data. I think it's one of the coolest projects that humans have ever undertaken. And the fact that we've lost contact with Voyager 2 is kind of a bummer. And they think in October there'll be an opportunity to reconnect with it. So I just want to get that out there. It's quieter in the twilight. It's a very nice little documentary film about Scientists dedicated to these two little vehicles. Is it on uh, videotape now? It's probably on videotape (laughs) now. now. Is it on DVD right now? No, it's on all the streamers, I'm sure. Oh, it's streaming Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just a cool... This is recent. Yeah, it's quieter in the twilight. It came out earlier this year. From La Jolla News, a new California e-bike bill could change the rules around who can ride electric bicycles and place additional restrictions on those that do... The California e-bike bill, Assembly Bill 530, is currently working its way through the state legislature. If the California e-bike bill passes in its current form, it would require anyone who doesn't have a driver's license to take an online written test and have state-issued ID before riding an e-bike. Yeah. Establish an e-bike training program in partnership with the California DMV and California Highway Patrol and ban people under 12 
from riding e-bikes in the state. Now, I got to say, you know, it's especially in cities, especially oh. in the suburbs. If you're riding an e-bike out in <laughs> between Bakersfield and Fresno back roads, go for it. Yeah. I don't care how old you are yeah. and have some beer while you're at it. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, yeah. I, I there's, there's I know. Two, there are accidents just waiting oh, to happen God, yes. all the time with these. And, in the, in the yeah. part of the world I live in, it's these kids, they're, you can tell they're high school. Don't call them kids. Okay, they're that's, high school that's, kids. High just, school people yeah. um, are, are doing, <laughs> they're doing wheelies on the coast highway. Yeah. They're coming down, I'll say specifically Dover, onto the coast highway. Oh, really? Dover? Yeah. Oh, so down. Yeah, well, down, there's a high school right by there. the bridge there. It's down. right, yeah, yeah, Newport High is right there. Yeah. And they come down the hill yeah. and then they get onto the coast highway. And I've seen them going over the bridge doing wheelies, four or five of them at a time. They're in packs, right? Well, I'm glad they can do wheelies, but do them. No, yeah, you know, but I mean, it's nuts. The coast it's nuts. Yeah. And so, absolutely, I think this is a. Unfortunately, this was going to happen because you get kids on, on bikes that can go 35 miles an hour who wouldn't. At that age, why wouldn't you want to be yeah. on one of those? I get it, but yeah, it's it's nuts. From Reuters News Service, booksellers along the river Seine in Paris protested plans to hide them during the 2024 Olympics after they were told by local authorities to remove their stalls for the opening ceremony for security reasons. The bucanists, that's what they're called, along the river, make up the largest open-air book market in Europe and represent a 400-year-old tradition. Mm. Police told the booksellers their stalls are within the perimeter of protection for the opening ceremony and must be removed for obvious security reasons. That's the police speaking there. But the booksellers argue the move threatens to erase the symbol of the city, and they should be there for the opening ceremonies. Paris 2024 organizers expect at least 600,000 people to attend the opening ceremony on the Seine that could sell a lot of books, where athletes and delegations will sail along the river the first time the ceremony has been held outside the stadium and that the public will have free access to it. So, I mean, I'm both for and against that idea. I I like that the public has free access to it, but there's something nice about having the opening ceremonies in a stadium it's kind of you enter the ring yeah. you know yeah. it's one of them things mm-hmm. however about 570 of the stalls which make up about 60 percent of the total along the river need to be dismantled and moved the city has invited them to move to a specially created bookseller village kind of sounds like the irvine company is involved in this <laughs> in a literary neighborhood near the Seine. For the duration of the 33rd Olympiad between July 26th and August 11th. So that would be next year. Because you're sitting there right now thinking, I'm missing the Olympics. Yeah, Yeah. how did that happen? Here's a good question for you, Mike. Okay. Did you ever try Trader Joe's fully cooked falafels? No. From Southern Living Magazine, Trader Joe's issued two more recalls this week. One for a prepared soup and another for falafel. On Friday, that's last Friday, Trader Joe's announced that its fully cooked falafel and unexpected broccoli cheddar soup could contain rocks. Oh, my goodness. Unexpected rocks. This was the third recall announced by Trader Joe's in the space of a week. Earlier, the company recalled some of their dark chocolate chunk and almond cookies, as well as their almond windmill cookies, because rocks again may have inadvertently been among the ingredients. 
Well, I'm sure the people who have purchased these items are well aware of the uh, the rock. I don't think there's like content. A, a whole. Rock. You think it's like I would ground say gravel? Up? Yeah, <laughs> gravel. <laughs> gravel. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is really crunchy, honey. Yeah. Mmm, I love the crunch. <laughs> I love the cr- oh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And finally, here's one for Mahler. Mahler, are you there? I think he went to sleep. This, yeah, he has whole thing really taken a break this, yeah. today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this one's for you, boy. From Slate Magazine. Slate Magazine, yeah. During the early months of Joe Biden's presidency, his White House dog, Major, a German shepherd, would not stop biting staff members, especially members of the Secret Service, Oof. even after briefly being sent to the Biden home in Delaware for don't-bite-people training. Yeah. Eventually, in December 2021, Major was shipped out to live in a quieter environment with family friends as the White House welcomed a new cat and a German shepherd puppy named Commander. Unfortunately, Commander has bitten seven people in a four-month period. Oh, my. According to internal Secret Service communications. Wow. A spokesperson for Jill Biden said that the Bidens are working through ways to make the situation better for everyone and described the White House and its grounds as a unique and often stressful environment for family pets. I got to believe you got people coming there all the time. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. they're tromping across the lawn. You know, yeah. They're on business. Yeah. And the dog's out there playing. Yeah. The next thing they know, the person is walking right up to the president and sticking their hand that's out. True. And the that dog goes, wait. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That belongs to me. <laughs> As you might expect, with the lunatic right spun commander's bad behavior into a political scandal, <laughs> Thomas J. Fitton, the leader of uh, the radical right Judicial Watch. Oh, God. A pro-Trump, anti-climate science, Steve Bannon collaborating, voter fraud promoting activist group. Absolutely. Described the bites as evidence of corruption and abuse that raise fundamental questions about President oh, Biden. Oh, my God. You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review Podcast at WeeklySignals.com. WeeklySignals.com. Subscribe now.